Luke 22, beginning in verse 54, God's word says, Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, Certainly, this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Behold, the rooster crows today. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You said I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. A common refrain in my house growing up was, Pride goeth before the fall. Normally as we are boasting about our Monopoly winnings or something. And a haughty spirit before destruction. Uh, My parents often warning us that pride is a downfall. Pride will lead to you being shamed. You know, the danger that thinks we have it all together, we're secure, I got this, is when you're actually at your weakest point. Sadly, I have had to experience that myself, not just learn from my parents. One humiliating example is I became a bagger at a big grocery store in HEB in San Antonio called HEB. And as I worked there, the manager said, hey, I really want you to become a cashier. And this would be no big deal. I really want it. So he sent me to the training, and I went. And the first step before you did everything else was just take a simple math test. And this is no problem. I mean, I always got A's in math. I did really well. If you know later, I became a math teacher. So simple, adding, subtracting, flew through this, done. Failed. I had missed many, but the most harmful, I'd missed one too many. Oh, I got this. It's no problem. And so then I had to go back to my store. Um, uh, I actually can't become a cashier for six months. Why not? I failed the math test. You failed the math test? That's easy. Yeah, it was. My pride led to my humiliation. And here we see that in our passage, because Peter, you remember his boast? Oh, yes, Lord, everyone else can deny you, but not me. I'm going to be with you to the very end. I'll never deny you. And yet, As we just read, Peter denies him three times. This was a horrible night. A night in which, as we read in the verses before, if you look at verse 53, where it is the hour, it is the power of darkness. 
And in the midst of this dark night, is there any light? As we go through this, we're going to see it as very dark, and yet there are glimmers of light. There's glimmers of hope because Christ and what he came to do and who he is shines forth. The darkness tried to overcome him, but it could not. The light overcame the darkness. Even in the midst of disciples who deny him, even in the midst of being abused by soldiers and then going through a mockery of a trial, Jesus' character, his mission, clearly shines forth. This morning as we look at this, there's kind of three clear sections. In verses 54 through 62, we learn about denying Peter. If you have a bulletin, you can see this outline on the back of it. Then in verses 63 through 65, there's the jeering soldiers. And then lastly, in verses 66 through 71, there's condemning leaders. But first, we have the story of Peter and him denying Christ. And let's just remember the context. Here, Jesus has just been betrayed betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has stopped his disciples as they pulled out a sword and chopped off the servant's ear and Jesus then healed them. And then Jesus rebuked them for arresting him like a common robber at night. He'd been with them in the temple every day. Why are y'all doing this? Showing that they are people of the darkness while he is of the light. And now they seize him and they take him to the high priest. Now I've mentioned this a few times, but if you read all four of the Gospels, you see that there's little details that are not always in each Gospel. Luke kind of truncates it. He makes it smaller. He doesn't give every detail. So if we looked at every detail, we'd see that first Jesus went to Annas, the high priest. And then they took him to Caiaphas, one who shared the high priesthood. And then they went to the Sanhedrin. And then the Sanhedrin meets again, and then they take him to Pilate. But Luke is not denying any of that. He's just focusing in on those details that are most important. And so he focuses in on Jesus going to the priest. But before that, the camera, so to speak, zooms off Jesus, and it focuses in on Peter. Because Peter, it looked like all the other disciples, he'd fled away. And yet, he kind of circled back. And he follows from a distance. And we know from John's gospel, he was even able to get into the priest, the high priest's house, where they were having this trial. And he was able to be there. And then, it's night. It's cold. The servants make a fire. And probably Peter thinks, ah, no one will recognize me. You know, it's dark. I'll just kind of get by the edge. And he starts warming his hands. And then one of the servant girls has happened to her that happens to us you see someone and you go "Ooh, i know them where do i know them from and you're sitting there in your mind racing through all the places you might know them ah you work at the post office i know you and all of a sudden her mind you're one of jesus disciples yet peter says no i do not know him now those are not just any words if at that time you were kicked out of a synagogue they would say we no longer know you You can still hear this language in Middle Eastern families today. When someone is kicked out of the family, they say, we no longer know him. Peter is making a strong denial of Christ. He made all these boasts, and yet now he's making strong denunciations. Except notice notice who it is that gets Peter, the great rock, to crack. A little girl. It wasn't some big burly soldier with a spear in his face. Some young servant girl goes says, you were with Jesus. No, I I don't even know him. And he's cracked. Well, some time passes and then another one comes up and he kind of bronze. You're one of them. You're one of those disciples. 
And yet Peter now not only denies being with Jesus, he denies being with the whole group. No, I don't know anything about those people. You know, Peter's trying to ride the fence. He wants to be close so he can know what happens to Jesus, but he doesn't want to be associated with him or with his followers. And then another hour passes, and someone now kind of firmly, they say, certainly, come as truly, I can tell you were one of them. You know, in his mind, it's the only logical conclusion. Here's a person with a Galilean accent in the high priest's house in the middle of the night by the fire. Well, what could be any other reason for you to be here except that you're one of Jesus' followers? And Peter again says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. If you read the other Gospels, we read in Mark 14 that Peter even invoked a curse upon himself. He basically said, God damn me if I knew him. I don't know that man. And he calls curses upon himself. And yet, even while Peter is speaking, the rooster crows. And then Luke tells us something that's not in any other gospel, and that is that he looked, and Jesus looked at him, and they saw each other. And Peter's immediately struck. He remembers Jesus' words that you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Well, how does Jesus look at Peter? Was it disgust? I can't believe it. I, I can't believe I picked you to be a disciple. You're worthless. Was it anger? You triple denying betrayer. You thought you could stand? I hate you. Was it rolling of the eyes exaggeration? <laughs> Told you so. I knew you were going to do it. I warned you. And here you go. Three times. Like I said, <sighs> I'm done. Well, I don't think it was any of those. Why do I not think that? Because we have the rest of Jesus' life in the gospel. We have other looks. Look, for example, in Luke chapter 7, mentally. We're not going to turn there. You don't have to mentally look. Because what happens there? Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee, and a woman comes in and is weeping at his feet, weeping so much that she wipes the tears off his feet with her hair. Well, why? Because, well, how did the Pharisee do? What did he do? He looked at her with scorn. Just the look of Jesus let her know she was welcome. That no longer was she being seen as a sinner. She was seen as someone who was being called back. Someone who was forgiven. Or the father in Luke 15, the parable of the two lost sons. Jesus is the one who looks at the prodigal son who goes away and is looking for him to come back and then runs to him. He's the father who looks at the older son who doesn't want to come in and celebrate and he's looking and he goes to him or luke chapter 20 the vineyard owner who sends servant after servant trying to bring them back you see the bible definitely has warnings and jesus has given many even some to peter yet it is god's kindness that leads us to repentance it is yes we only realize god's kindness as we know our sin however god is not a father who no matter what you do can always find one mistake. Well, yeah, you did a pretty good job, but what about this? No matter what you do, he's always got something he's going to critique you for. You know, many of us think of God that way because that's how we treat ourselves. We're constantly oscillating between con condemning ourselves. Oh, I'm so horrible. Everything I do is wrong too. Always praising ourselves. I'm the best. can never mess up. 
And we're going back and forth. We swing from prideful delight in how wonderful we are to prideful depression over how horrible we are. And yet, Jesus centers us. So we see our sin, and yet we also see his grace. You're rather, I think Jesus is looking at Peter with a mix of sadness. It broke his, you would, you would do that to me? And yet he's looking with eyes of beckoning him back. Peter, you break my heart, and yet, Peter, I want you to come back. There's this mixture in his eyes. And so what does Peter do? As he sees this mixed face of sorrow and calling back, he goes out and he weeps bitterly. And yet here we have to notice the vast difference between Peter's sorrow and Judah's sorrow. Judah's sorrow was merely one of regret. He'd let himself down. Oh, how could I do this? And his pride would not let him come back. Because if he had, he would have received the same look from Jesus. It is not just Judah's sin that condemned him. It was that he would not then receive the grace of Christ. No, there is no sin you can do that then Jesus goes, I'm done. No more. Peter shows us that there is always the look beckoning you back. Yes, does it break God's heart when we rebel? Yes. But it also, he sends his love towards us. And we see that in Christ. In contrast to Judas, Peter allowed his pride to be crushed. You see, he weeps not only for the consequences of what he did, not only because it revealed how sinful he is, he weeps because of what he did against God. Well, how do we know this? Because we read the rest of the story. Peter is going to go back to the disciples. He's going to be one of the first ones to go to the tomb. And we're going to see that Jesus himself, you can read in John how Jesus restores him. So what should we make of Peter's three denials? It's interesting, as you read the Gospels, they don't always include the same information. But this is one thing that every Gospel includes. So clearly God is trying to get us to recognize something important. I think there's three things we have to realize. And the first is that should give us pause and have a great humility about ourselves. You know, the thing about Peter is he's hard to understand because he's a mix of good and bad. When he said, I will go with you to death, on some level he meant it because he pulled out the sword. He was ready to fight. Where are the other ten disciples? They haven't followed Jesus to the courtyard. So on some level, Peter is doing really good things, and yet God does not just go, well, your intentions were good. That's fine. Good intentions don't mean that you don't later sin. And Peter, though he's there, he went there with his pride. His pride that led him to prayerlessness, that left him completely unprepared. When Jesus told him of his coming temptation, he should have earnestly gone into prayer. And yet, his cocky attitude left him unprepared. Just like, oh, it's a simple math test. Click, 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 click. Led him unready. Left him weak because he was focusing on our own strength. And we need the reality to realize my good intentions are not enough. I intend to do many good things. That doesn't mean I do them. Your heart is deceptively wicked. So we have to be very cautious and be very prayerful. Otherwise, like Peter, we'll be overcome by great things like little servant girls. 
What is that? That could, I would never fall to that. And then we fall. Because in our pride, we thought, ah, I could never do that. would never get me. But second, Peter's denial should cause us to realize the seriousness of sin. So it should give us a humility about ourselves, but also the seriousness of sin. I think this is an important one because we often take the first truth, humility about our sin, and we draw the wrong conclusion. The conclusion we draw is, well, we all sin. No big deal. And yet Peter did something that was dangerous. It was horrible. It put him at hostility with God. How do I know that? Well, because Jesus had said in Luke 9, 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. Those are strong words from Jesus, and they apply to Peter. Yes, there's going to be forgiveness. Yes, Jesus looked at him with compassion. But yet we should never use that to diminish the fact that for Jesus to have compassion, for Jesus to look at him with grace, meant that he would have to continue to the cross. You know, this happens when we say things like, well, no one's perfect. We're all going to sin. It's all right. Hey, brother, it's okay. We all struggle there. God's grace. Focus on God's grace. Sister, it's hard having kids. We all blow up in anger. Don't worry about it. Well, yes, on one hand, it's a freeing truth that I'm not the only horrible sinner who's captured in the sin, and I can open up. I don't need to be a Pharisee. I can go, I struggle with sin, and you do too, and let's be honest about it. Yes, that should free us, but it should then not lead to the next step of, so it's okay to sin secretly. It's okay to get angry sinfully. No, that's not what we draw from it. We draw that, yes, we must be humble, but yes, we should still realize how serious it is. Here, we have to see that our sin is serious. We can't just brush it off as it's no big deal. And Peter realizes this because he then goes and he weeps. He realizes this was a serious thing I've done. You know, there's a world of difference between beating yourself up for your sin because you let yourself down and weeping over your sin because you have hurt God, because you've sinned against him. You know, the first, I've let myself down, leads you to be an apostate like Judas. The second leads you to be one like Peter, the apostle. And so Peter shows us we need humility. Peter shows us we have to take sin seriously. And Peter shows us that we must be vigilant in fighting sin. Vigilant. You know, there's an effort in our part. Peter should have been praying. You know, Peter later reflected on this. His letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, he kind of captures this dualness of I have to depend on God in prayer, and yet I still need to be active in the fight. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So all these things, so God will help you. But then he goes on, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore. Peter knows that restoration. 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus, we have to humble ourselves. We say, God, I cannot fight this on my own strength. I need you. And yet then Peter put in a lot of commands. He said, watch out, resist, hold on. We need to be in that fight. It's not just, well, I'm going to pray and go do whatever. I pray and I fight. You know, notice in this, though, that Peter had learned to fight sin by remembering the past. And sometimes as Christians, I think we think about this wrongly. We go, well, when I think about the past, all I feel is guilt. Satan's only bringing up the past to shove my face in it and make me feel horrible. But there's another way that I think even the Holy Spirit uses our sinful past. And that is to remind us, I've been saved from that. To remind us that I need your strength right now or I could go back to that, that this very moment. And so we can use the past in a redemptive way. Yes, I was a sinner. Peter's talking about this and yet he restores us. Ah, oh, I remember when I was in that courtyard and I denied Jesus three times, but now look, he's restored me and the past is used redemptively. Now part of that vigilance and fighting sin is taking three simple steps. First, it's an honest awareness, and it's a confession of our love of sin. It's a Romans 7 statement that part of me, it really wants that thing I shouldn't want. And there's another part of me, because I'm a new man that hates it. And yet we have to be honest about that, and so we pray, we cry out to God. Second, in that awareness, we don't fight alone. You know, Peter got into the priest's house with another, but then where did he go? Peter was all alone in his moment of temptation. We often talk about Paul's missionary journeys, but the reality is Paul never went alone. If you read all of the details and acts, there's person after person that went with him. We'll be talking about membership later. We were not made to live the Christian life alone. We need others to fight with us and for us. And the third thing, be realistic about temptation. And put boundaries and rules to keep you from it. Ah, I knew it was coming. Legalist Pastor Jeremy starts bringing out the rules. Here comes the things we can and can't do. I thought God had to save us. I thought it was about grace. Well, yes, it is about grace. It is about Christ giving us the power to change. It is a new heart you need. But that new heart also realizes there's a battle with the old one. It's the humble awareness that I can have all the good intentions in the world. I'm, I'm going to become a prayer partner with this person of the opposite sex. And then realizing that that often leads to other things you need to confess. It's the realization that, oh, I can have lots of good intentions, but sin is going to try and lure me in. So I set up boundaries in my life. So I go, you know what? Time and time again, Men and women have fallen here, so I'm going to make sure I never even get in that situation. Now, if you're hoping in your rules alone, you're going to fall. No rule, no law will ever keep your heart from sin. And yet, at the same time, it's foolish to go, just going to trust the power of the Spirit in me, and I'm going to go out and conquer the world. We need to realize the nature of our hearts and set careful and wise boundaries. You see, no set of rules will ever keep you from all sin, for sin starts in here. And yet, no rules will also lead you to sin because your heart will deceive you. 
And so here we see the darkness pressing in. And yet it's not only because Peter is denying Jesus. It's also because we see next that there are soldiers who are jeering and mocking Jesus. The second point, verses 63 through 65, jeering soldiers. And so the camera goes off Peter and it now zooms in on Christ. And here the temple guard, they're mocking him. They put a blindfold around him and they punch him. And then they say, well, prophesy, you're a prophet. Come on, who hit you? You know, here, this is the cruelty that exists in our world. You know, at any moment, Jesus could have said who it was. At any moment, he could have made it so they all were bowing down before him. But he knew this was part of the plan for our salvation, our restoration, our healing. Peter also reflects on this, First Peter 2.23. We read it to begin the service. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Well, do do humans really act like this? Yes. The sad reality is that we find sadistic pleasure in tormenting and abusing the good things God has given us. Playgrounds, living rooms, boardrooms, anywhere people exist, abuse can and does happen. People are mocked. God's image is disrespected. You don't have to go to dark prisons or horrible regimes. Anywhere and everywhere, abuse, horrible torment, and mockery occurs. John Stott, the pastor from England who's passed away and told of this play called The Long Silence. And he says, at the end of time, billions of people were scattered out on this great plain before God's throne. Most of them had shrunk back from the brilliant light, but there was some groups up towards the front, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us, they said. How can he know about snuff suffering, snapped a young pert brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi, Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. Far out across the plain were hundreds. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in this world. How lucky was God to live in heaven where all there was was peace and harmony. There's no weeping, no hunger, no fear. What did God know of all that man had to face and endure? God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So they formed a plan. It's a rather clever plan. God must become a man. And then through shouts, they started saying various things he must endure. Let him be born of a Jew. Yes, let it be of a birth that will then be doubted. Give him a work to do that's so difficult that even his family will think he's gone mentally insane. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends and the crowd is cheering. Let him face false charges. Let him be tried by a prejudiced jury and then convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And last, let him see what it means to be alone, terribly alone, and then let him die. And the crowd all cheered and then there was silence as they realized, suddenly they knew God had served 
his sentence. Now the amazing thing is, God had no sentence to serve. God did not have to do endure any of that. God never did anything wrong. The fact that there's suffering in this world does not mean he had to suffer. But in his love, he allowed himself to suffer. The fact is that the life of Jesus was one of sorrow. It was one where he was acquainted with grief. Not because he had to, but because of his amazing character. You see, all of that was planned, all of that was foretold in Isaiah 53. Why? Because God came to suffer for us and also with us. You know, we often rightly focus, God suffered for me. Which is true. But God also suffers with me. You know, thus, no one can honestly say, no one knows what I'm going through. No one can say, this is so dark. No one has been in a darkness this dark. Jesus entered our suffering for us and with us. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thus, in the midst of this horrific abuse, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy and showing his love you know that jesus is showing himself to be a prophet you know jesus had just foretold that peter would deny him three times and he told the time and frame in which it would happen jesus had also foretold of this luke 9 22 he said the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised luke 17 25 he said but first he must suffer many things and be rejected Luke 18, he will be delivered over the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. As they mock him for being a prophet, they are only ensuring that his prophecies come true. That he prophesied in his love that he would endure suffering with us and for us. You know, he could do this, though, because as we're going to see, Jesus is not just a sufferer, because many people in the world have suffered. Jesus is not just a prophet. There have been other prophets. But Jesus is the one and only Son of God, the Messiah who was sent. And we see that in the last section, verses 66 to 71, condemning leaders. This is the story shifts again. Daybreak is coming, we see in verse 66, and they've gathered the elders of the people they've gathered the high priests the scribes now luke doesn't use this word but it's a group called the sanhedrin it was a group of 70 men who were leaders over israel that roman kind of officially recognized to take care of many internal issues now gathering this group together kind of gives this appearance of oh we're trying to try justice we're trying to make sure what is right is done and yet this is a mockery of a trial there's a Jewish document from around 200 B.C. called the Sanhedrin that laid out many of the rules for proper court situations. Now, this was 100 years later, so maybe these weren't in time at Jesus' time, but some of these rules are clearly things that should happen in a trial, and yet they didn't. Daryl Bach notes three of these. First, Jesus was tried without a defense, which their own documents say he should have. The verdict came in the space of one day. 
when two days were required for a capital punishment. Third, a pronouncement of guilt was always supposed to start with the lowest member and work its way up. Why? Well, because if the highest member says something, then all below might say, oh, yes, we agree with that because they don't want to be on the bad side of the leader. But in their system, the lowest member, and yet who cries out, what else do we need? It was the high priest. And so they're giving the appearance, so we want justice, so we bring it to a trial. And yet everything they do is unjust. And one of the biggest issues is it was all rushed through. Well, why? Well, for one, Rome only heard Jewish court cases early in the morning, and so they wanted to get this to Pilate or to Herod. And the issue as well is the next day is the Sabbath. So if they don't get Jesus tried today, well, then they've got to wait another day, and then he'll have been in prison three days. And the people love Jesus. How are they going to co- communicate to the people why Jesus is in prison when they don't have a single argument for why he should be in there? Every time they bring an accusation, it's contradicted by someone else. And so they finally get down to the heart of the matter. Verse 67, they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. You notice they're not asking him if he's done anything wrong. They're asking, who are you? You know, the question of whether Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that's what Christ means, gets to the key issue of who is Jesus? You know, from the beginning, Jesus has been shown to be the Messiah. When the angels came to the shepherds outside Bethlehem, they said, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, Messiah. He's here, the Lord. Or in Luke chapter 4, Jesus heals some people of demons, and the demons are crying out who he is, and Jesus tells them to be quiet because they know that he's the Christ. That's who he is and why he came. Or in Luke chapter 9, Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and then he asks, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. This is what Jesus is on trial for. And Jesus then asks them, he says to them, look, if I tell you, if I tell you group of Sanhedrin that I'm the Messiah, you're not even going to believe me. You know, he's, he's done numerous signs for them. That very night, he had just done another miracle. He had healed a man's ear that was chopped off. I mean, who has ever heard of this? So what's the point of saying it? What's the point of doing another sign? They don't want to believe is the issue. They don't want to learn. And even if he asks them questions, they're not going to answer. This happened just a couple chapters before when they asked where his authority came from. He says, okay, I'll answer. But where did John the Baptist come from? From heaven or from man? And they refused to answer. Again, they want to appear as though they're seeking justice. And yet it's just a mockery of it. But then Jesus adds, in verse 69, that from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's quoting from Psalm 10 and Daniel 7 and bringing it together. In Daniel 7, it's a promise of a Son of Man who will come, a representative of all mankind who will rule over all of the earth forever. Jesus is making no small claim. But notice what else he's implying. He's basically saying, yes, y'all are sitting as judges now, but I am the ultimate judge. I am the one before whom all will come, even y'all. You know, the implication is clear that he's the Son of God. In a minute, they'll draw that out. So you're saying you're the Son of God? They understand 
what he's saying. And yet Jesus is showing them that, look, right now, you think you're winning. It looks like this is the hour of darkness, but Jesus sees through that. He sees past the cross. He sees the resurrection. He sees his ascension, and he sees himself sitting at the right hand of God. He is seeing what will happen. It may look like he's a helpless victim in the clutches of an unjust judge, unjust trial, except Jesus is showing he is victoriously doing exactly what he came to do. He came to conquer sin, death, and the devil, and he is doing it. And so they say, well, are you saying you're the son of God? And so he says, well, you say that I am. Now, he's not denying it, but again, there's no point saying it because they aren't going to listen to him no matter what he says. And so they then, verse 71, conclude, there's no more need for witnesses. He has condemned himself. Now, we do need to be very clear. If Jesus is not who he is, who he claimed to be, he is blaspheming. Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God who will rule over the cosmos for all eternity. To make that claim and not be that person is blasphemy. And yet if it is true, these people should not be sitting in judgment. They should be on their face, bowing before him. And Jesus is again showing that one day the tables are going to be turned. And the question will not just be to those judges, but will be for all of us. Who do you say that he is? Was Jesus just another man? Had some good teachings? Good man? Or was Jesus God in the flesh who came to redeem the world to conquer sin? Now the interesting thing is many people have taken from this a very odd truth. They have then taken from this, well, because of this, we should hate Jews. Anti-Semitism is what it's called. And then many will then respond, well, so what we need to do is we need to exonerate these men because that will lead to anti-Semitism. And yet neither of those is really very logical. Yes, this group of men did, did condemn Jesus. However, what did Jesus say? He said, love your enemies. On the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And here, we also have to realize what we just sang about in our last song. And we sing about in many other songs. And that is, though these men were the ones who gave the official condemnation, Jesus hung on that cross because of me and because of you. We correctly sing, Behold the man upon a cross, my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the soft scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Or I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nail and hung him on that judgment tree. I think Horatio Boner expresses it correctly, and most aptly he says, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all the multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voiceless rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if 
I'm mocked alone. And even beyond that, Jesus did not die because Judas betrayed him. Jesus did not die because the Jewish leadership condemned him. Jesus did not die because the Roman rulership then put him on the cross. At any moment, Jesus could have said, done. I don't want to do this. Jesus died on the cross because he loves you. Because he was willing to go through that to redeem the world. So that he might look at the Peters and the Jeremys and all who have rebelled against him and say, this is horrible. And yet, will you come home? I am dying for you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we see your great love. Lord, may we see the seriousness of our sin. Oh Lord, we are prone to flee from what is good and true and to what is destructive. And yet, your Son came. He entered in to save us, to deliver us even from ourselves. Lord, we thank you for what your Son did. And may we go forth in joy, knowing your great love for us. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.